church or new to the Bible, you'll find numbers um, in the Old Testament near the beginning because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then numbers. So the fourth, fourth book in the Old Testament. We could be turning candidly to, to Exodus chapter 12, or we could be turning to Leviticus 23, several places in the Old Testament that instruct us, tell us the story of the Passover. And as we're doing this series on, uh, we're calling 20 chapters of redemptive history, we're trying to, to, to mark some of the major milestones in, in the story of how God saved his people. And not only just kind of to, to know history, biblical history, but, but to ask the question, what does this say to us? And what does this have to do with us? How is this our story and, and not just history? Uh, so if you found your place in uh, the book of Numbers, we're in chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 14, if you would stand in honor of God's Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? Man concerning you. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, if any one of you or of, of, of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, for its instructions to us to keep the Passover. We thank you for providing um, a, a sacrifice that we could find shelter under him as a substitute. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so, uh, you know, as I said before, we, we could have turned to Exodus 12 and 
It would have been fine to read the original account of the Passover, the very first time that Israel celebrated the Passover, that night that they were delivered uh, from Egyptian slavery. Uh, we could have read that, but I thought it would be interesting to read the, the, the account of the second time that they, they celebrated the Passover. This is now a year later, uh, and the Exodus and the Red Sea uh, was uh, a year ago. So now this is the second anniversary of the Exodus, and they're they're celebrating the Passover, but there's some, some questions that have arisen about, hey, because they've touched a dead body, they've come, they've come in contact with death. And there's, there's another group, hey, we've been away. You know, we were on a journey uh, and it couldn't be helped. And so we missed the, the celebration of the Passover. What about us? And so, you know, there's some provision, right, for those who have, have missed out. Um, we've looked at a couple of other occasions so far in this, you know, 20 chapters of redemptive history to talk about uh, the cycle and, and the seasons in Israel's calendar of how there would be moments in time when the entire assembly was to come together and mark something significant, like the Day of Atonement, like Yom Kippur, right? We read about that. Um, there are days like this, like the Passover, which commemorates and inaugurates the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a time when the entire community of Israel would come together. Some would have to make a pilgrimage to come to, you know, eventually Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would have other feasts uh, like Pentecost, and they would have feasts like Tabernacles, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, there calendar began to take on this, this rhythm and this cycle to help orient them to what's the story that God's telling of his salvation, to help them into better, deeper, more meaningful worship, rather than just kind of random stuff. So, um, you know, for instance, still today, the Jewish community celebrates Passover. It was, uh, it was a few weeks ago. It was on April 15th, and they would have a Seder meal and, you know, unleavened bread and, and keep uh, unleavened the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, just like we saw with Yom Kippur, they still celebrate that. So it's a good time to just pause and just ask the question. We're not gonna go deep into this. This is just kind of like a little tangent. But how much does the, the story of redemption, how much does that calendar influence your life? How much do you, do you give thought and pause to, this happened on this day in biblical history, and maybe that, thinking can help me to reorient or think about my life and, and how I'm living in, in light of that true story? Does my life, does my story weave into that story? Did you know, for instance, that this past Thursday was ascension? He ascended. Why is that important? Because when he ascended, he was seated at the right hand of God. He reigns. And how much more today do we need to be reminded of the ruling and reigning of Jesus right now. This is Ascension Sunday. And in light of all of the terrible things that are going on in the world, in light of how death is touching us in a myriad of ways, we need to be reminded that God's on his throne, that he's made provision for us. Think about, think about the ways that, that death is touching you. Uh, it touches all of us. I mean, we were here yesterday for June Fox's memorial, you know, some beautiful flowers to remember her by. And it was a, I mean, certainly a sorrowful moment. There are tears. We miss our dear sister. She was uh, that beautiful white-haired lady in the little red house in the Blue Ridge Mountains, as we were singing about. Uh, but it was a celebration. It was, we were, we were rejoicing as well. 
but we are going to miss her. Death has touched the Craig family. It's touched the Tabernacle family. But then you looked at how death touches so many people so regularly, right? I mean, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And how many of us have family members, ancestors, in order to, to lay down their lives so that you and I could have even this experience of worshiping without fear, without threat, and we have incredible liberties that, that we give thanks for and that we remember those who, who gave their lives to provide those things and protect those freedoms you know, on days like Memorial Day tomorrow. Memorial Day exists because, of, frankly, wars exist, right? Because there are threats to civil liberties, threats to you know, countries' uh, autonomy and so on. And so when you think about Ukraine, we're talking about the war in Ukraine, but let's not forget that the word war is just sort of a sanitized way for us to talk about, you know, intentional mass murder from one aggressing uh, nation to another nation. Thousands and thousands of people have been murdered in Ukraine, and death has touched Ukraine in a way that's unfathomable for us. And death continues to touch us. You think about Buffalo, New York, two weeks ago, we gave, you know, we were talking about Yom Kippur. I was in the pulpit. I did not even know there was that school, uh, that, that uh, shooting in the grocery store. I, I hadn't checked my news feed. I hadn't picked up my phone or whatever. I'm just trying to get in the zone, trying to prepare and trying to preach. And I got home that afternoon and found out, oh my gosh, 10 people were gunned down for simply being black. You know, three others wounded. And death has touched those families. Death has touched Duvalde, Texas, where 19 kids and two teachers were gunned down. And uh, there's 17 others who have been wounded. Did you know that um, annual average of gun deaths in our country is above 45,000? 45,000 people are touched by gun violence. Um, and over half of those are suicides. And think about how death touches those families and touches those communities. And we can also, you know, we're not unmindful of COVID and we passed the million uh, mark uh, in terms of COVID deaths recently. And we think about abortion, you know, and there were a million annual deaths from abortion from 1973 to 2012, three, and we pray that dropping, we're thankful for that, it's less than it was back in, you know, 1973. And we pray that, you know, what we're hearing from, from SCOTUS might be true that they're going to you know, reverse Roe v. Wade, but that doesn't mean that death hasn't touched even those in this room because of abortion, because of gun violence, because of racism. I mean, death touches us. Death was touching these people in uh, Numbers uh, chapter 9, and you know, in verse 6, these, these people come, and they, they're unclean because they've been touched by death in some way, shape, or form or the other, and God makes provision for them to know his grace, for them to know his Passover, um, to know his, his love and his promise. And they get to celebrate the Passover a month later. Um, there's this, okay, yeah, we need to talk about that. We didn't, we didn't address that, you know, when we're rushing out of Egypt a year ago, but now that, you know, things have settled down, let's talk about how do we navigate uh, the approach to God and the presence of God in light of some of these special circumstances. So one of those was people have been touched by death. And they get to celebrate the, the Passover. We all face death. When, the, when that Passover, that very first Passover came, and, the, uh, as, and we read about how the, the Egyptians, because they didn't have 
the blood spread over their doorways. The firstborn son in the Egyptian household was taken because of why? The effects of sin. Because of their oppression, because of their slavery, because of you know, the hostility, because of the racism you know, from Egyptians to, to uh, Israelis. Those deaths were sentenced for sin. Paul in the Bible tells us very plainly in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin, the result of sin, the sentence of sin is death. We read about that you know, in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis, and it still continues today. Among all those, uh, we couldn't say it was the result. Only one of those that I listed really, you know, we couldn't say it was the result of some sinful choice. And that's June Fox. But can we be honest? June wasn't perfect. She was a sinner too. And we all are going to suffer death because of our sins. Sin is the sentence for death. But God has made provision for all of us who have been touched by death. Now, um, we didn't read the, the Exodus account, but let me read a brief uh, excerpt from there because I know that not all of us are familiar with Passover. Some of you, like I said, or maybe was a celebration, a way to commemorate, kind of like how we do Thanksgiving, remembering you know the founding of our of our nation and the pilgrims and so on. They remember the establishment and the deliverance of, of Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea through the Passover. They had to leave in a hurry, and the way that uh, Israel was going to leave is that God was going to send the final and convincing sign, the convincing plague on Egypt where God would take the firstborn son of every household unless that household sought refuge under God's provision of grace. A sacrifice, blood that would be shed and then spread on the doorframe. So let me pick up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Moses called the elders of Israel together and said, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, a really, you know, uh, feathery kind of branched uh, plant that would act as a paintbrush. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go, out, <clears throat> shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So the Passover then becomes this emblematic sacrifice for the rest of Israel's liturgy. All of the ceremony with the tabernacle, all that would happen eventually at the temple, all that would you know, then happen in Jerusalem goes back to this, this first national you know, celebration of a sacrifice where people would take refuge under blood that was shed on their behalf, a substitute. Some kind of like magic, like, oh, you just shed the blood and then you're good. He said it was rather symbolic of death. And this sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice. We look back two weeks and we talked about what atonement was. The animal stood in the place of the occupants, particularly the firstborn occupants 
of the house. And so God's judgment for sin, for all humanity, would pass over those homes where there was refuge under the sacrifice. Um, so basically what we're talking about here is how this sacrifice became, you know, the one that would be uh, typical for the rest of how God's people would always have to look for some substitute on their behalf. There was no way to escape God's judgment. Somebody was going to be judged. It was either the individual or another substitutionary sin bearer. And, and it was just frankly um, a bloody mess. There's no way to sanitize this. You can't make a Hallmark movie out of the Passover, right? Can you, I mean, can you imagine if this was still in effect for us today the same way it was for Israel? That on Passover, you have to go home, slaughter a, a lamb, pour out its blood into a bucket and take a paintbrush and paint your doorframe with blood. And it's a bloody mess. This blood would be spread across the two posts and the lintel of the doorframe. Blood on horizontal beam and vertical beams. Does that remind you of anything? Do you know where this is going? Do you know why we don't still have to celebrate Passover by killing a lamb, spilling its blood, and spreading it on the vertical and horizontal beams of our homes? Because this Passover was pointing to the ultimate Passover that would come. Given a lot of information in the Bible about the childhood of Jesus, but um, Luke gives us a couple of glimpses into the Holy Family when Jesus was small, when he was a boy. And we read in chapter 2 how Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Right? So they would make that pilgrimage from Nazareth into Jerusalem. And the Holy Family's life was revolving around, you know, like we talked about earlier, this, this calendar, this story of redemptive history. They were making it their story. This is us. This is our story too. And part of the observance was not only the sacrifice and the blood spread over the door, but then that lamb that was sacrificed would be cooked. It would be roasted uh, and it would be eaten in its entirety by the family that night. It was a fellowship meal. It was a way to say, this is our sacrifice for us, and we need it. We ingest it even, like it's so necessary for us. Rather than just something out there, it becomes something internalized, and it's meaningful that way. So uh, Exodus describes the Passover meal of eating the roasted lamb this way, um, that when you come to the land the Lord gives you, you shall keep the service, and when your children say to you, uh, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So there's this ritual that's still today in what the Jewish community now calls the Seder. That's the Passover meal. It's got unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, and, and the, you know, the lamb. And part of the ceremony is that the youngest child will ask, you know, on behalf of the family, what is the meaning of this service? What does this meal mean? What is this about? And then the father would tell the story of the Exodus. And that was, that's a part of the Passover celebration still today in Jewish households. Did you know 
There was a time in Jesus' childhood when he was that child, asking Joseph at the Passover meal, Abba, what is this about? Tell me about this meal. It was Jesus' first rabbinical school under Joseph. Fathers, you're leading your homes that way too. So once you skip forward from Luke 2 to Luke 22, 20 chapters and you know, who knows, 30 years maybe, now you got Jesus celebrating another Passover. And it's with his disciples. And they're back in Jerusalem. They make this pilgrimage. They make this feast every year. And we read in Luke 22 that Jesus sent Peter and John ahead saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And, um, you know, we do the words of institution, you know, every, every month. And next week, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and when Jesus was gathering his disciples in an upper room, he, he, dealt, he tells the story. It's a new exodus. He is the new Moses. And you get this really interesting dialogue going on between Thomas and Jesus. Do you remember how that conversation went? Jesus is talking about how he's got, he has to go and the disciples are, are trying to understand. And ultimately, God bless Thomas. You know, Jesus says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And that's the thing that they just cannot come to grips with. What do you mean you're going to suffer? And, and, and uh, says, how, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Thomas says, how can we know what you're talking about? Tell us what you mean. Because Jesus then says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, on behalf of all the disciples, is basically that child saying, we don't know the way. Tell us more. And Jesus is explaining how he is the ultimate Passover. He's the one leading us out of slavery to sin into the freedom of new life. He's the one leading us out of death into resurrection. So much so that, that then Paul, he, you know, the, the significance of it after the Holy Spirit comes, after Pentecost, and the apostles start preaching the significance of Jesus. And Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, um, making the analogy between the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the leaven is a representation of sin. They're supposed to get rid of the leaven as a symbol for getting rid of sin. And Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump of bread as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover. So when he was in the upper room with the disciples celebrating the Passover, he does something radical, he changes the script that had been recited for centuries. And when he takes the bread, he's, you know, after he gave thanks, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He asked them to remember him. And then he takes the cup in the same way. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. It's Memorial Day. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating Memorial Day. Not because, you know, men and women laid down their lives to preserve our country's freedom, but because the man, the God-man, laid down his life so that we could have true freedom, true life. And that's what Jesus was radically changing when he comes along and says, I'm your Passover. And the disciples have to blink a little bit and, you know, kind of shake their heads and go, what? 
We, we do need one to suffer for us. We do need blood spread on a horizontal and a vertical beam. We need to take shelter under his blood. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and they put their faith in him. Uh, Tremper Longman again says that the Gospels insist of the Exodus and his death. What does this have to do with us? How, how is this our story? You know, <clears throat> Okay, we know that Jesus is the new Passover. But in light of Numbers, you know, chapter 9, where you hear about the, the, uh, the dead who, are, you know, who have come in contact with dead bodies, and then you got strangers. Look at verse 14. If a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do, right? You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. So it's now a year later, and uh, there are people, men and women, who are among uh, the, the tribes of Israel who are not Jewish. They're Egyptian. And you go back in, in Exodus and you can read about those who, Egyptians, who recognize the, the Jewish God, he is the real God, and, you know, Ra and, you know, all the other panoply of Egyptian deities, they are nothing compared to their God, and I want to worship their God. And so they left Egypt. They left their homeland to go with Israel through the Red Sea and to wander in the desert. And now it's a year later, and they're going, so can we eat the Passover? And what does God say? There shall be one statue, one meal, one one Passover for everybody, right? To unite everybody. The Jewish and the non-Jewish all come together under one statute, under one God. And, that's, and, and so, I don't know if you know this, but if you don't have a Jewish bloodline, you and I are the sojourners. You and I are the ones who have been grafted in. You and I are the ones who have been given the, 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 the it's okay, come on in. You know, you get to come to the table as well. We're the foreigners, we're the strangers, we're the aliens who God has, has welcomed in, and we are the ones who have been included at this table. And so when you read Revelation 7, how around that throne is, are people from every nation and from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, you know, as you see on the front of the bulletin, I thought it was a great image of the, the creatures, the four creatures around the Lamb, and the Lamb who's been slain, who has the authority, the power to open the seven seals. And all around that throne are people, Jewish, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The gospel unites God's people. The Lamb unites God's people. Death is a divider. By definition, death divides the living and the dead. And, and because of what sin has done, sin has, you know, basically told, uh, the Bible describes this as everyone is dead in our sins and trespasses because death is the sentence for sin. We're the walking dead, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're dead men walking because that sentence hangs over every person apart from pardon, right? Apart from finding refuge under the bloody vertical and horizontal beams of Jesus' cross, and if you find refuge under his blood, through his forgiveness, because of his pardon, and if you are brought to new life through his resurrection, then that means you're no longer dead. You're alive. You're alive in Christ. You have been 
separated from this world, separated from everyone who has not yet sought refuge under God's grace through, through the blood that he's provided. How, therefore, if we are united because of the life that Jesus has provided for us, if we're no longer dead, if we're no longer divided by that death, we cannot let other deaths divide us. Being divided by all the places where death is touching us. How do we respond to gun violence? And you see Christians going like this over what is the wisest, healthiest, best way to do something about the fact that people are dying. How do gun violence ourselves get divided by the way that death touches us through racism? Yeah, okay, maybe there are differing opinions on the best way to combat racism and, and the extent of racism and so on, but we cannot let ourselves get divided about the fact that people are dying because of racism or about how the best handle abortion. What's the best way to combat that? We go through this all the time and Christians get divided again and again and again where we should not be divided because we're alive. We're not dead anymore. So this goes on and on and on. The only death that should divide the world is the death of Christ between those who have received his life and those who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. And those of us who have received his life Love one another, listen to one another, learn from one another, honor one another, respect one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens instead of get divided from one another, right? Does that make sense? So last thing, Jesus is the one lamb who unites us and he is our lamb because he needs to belong to you as an individual. Collectively, he's our lamb and individually, he's our lamb. Um, some of you know John Stott, a brilliant pastor and writer and theologian in the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, and in that he wrote that in the original Passover in Egypt, each Paschal lamb died instead of the family's firstborn son, and the firstborn son was spared only if a lamb was slain in his place. Not only had the lamb to be slain, but also its blood had to be sprinkled on the front door and its flesh eaten in a fellowship meal. This is the Passover ritual that was taught, that it was necessary for the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death to be personally appropriated, right? Israel left Egypt born again. They had personally appropriated the sacrifice that God had made so that they could be delivered from slavery. They could be made a new people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, wing to is a personal encounter with the living God who tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, personally appropriate it. Is he your savior too? Not just your parents' savior, not just your church's savior, not just this form and this ritual, you know, but truly the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's why we, we take the time each time we take the Lord's Supper to what we call fence the table. We, we, we say, yeah, the table's open to all. Jesus invites the whole world to come, but it's meaningless. The table is meaningless unless you understand that he died for you that he set you apart. You're no longer dead, you're alive. Baptism is a great expression of that. And that you're united to his people. You are no longer dead, you're part of the alive nation, the, the alive 
family of God. And if you have understood and appropriated that to yourself, come. If you're working on that, don't come. Get the substance first and then the symbol, right? So this has to be your Savior, your Lamb, your meal, your blood that Jesus has given for us. Those who feast on to Jesus will feast forever with him in eternity. Those who don't understand the feast, they're not going to be blessed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for the Passover. We give you thanks that there was provision for those of us who have been touched by death, indeed, who are guilty of it, Lord, who are under the sentence for our sin that you would provide a way and a means for us to have our sins forgiven and to experience new life. We thank you for Jesus who would give his life and, and enter into our death so that we wouldn't have to suffer for it. Lord, would you lead us in unity around your throne, celebrating the goodness and the mercy and the love of Jesus, our Lamb. Would you help us to regard one another as alive in Christ, no longer dead, no longer divided. Lord, would you help us to love one another and show the world what that unity looks like? This looks like too, that he is my Savior, my Jesus, and he can be the world's as well. Lord, we pray that you would bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.